the whole sort of crust that gets even the message of the little twin is the externalized, the completed externalization of whatever was inside us. The idea is that the externalization of a principle of decision from the human body is entirely new. In the old days, it was called community, where everybody decided for you what to do. Hello world, and welcome to the first episode of the New Explorations podcast, coming out of New Explorations Project, newexplorations.net. I'm talking today with Professor Derek Dekirkov. After the passing of Marshall McLuhan in 1980, Professor Dekirkov became the director of the McLuhan Program in Culture and Technology from 1983 until 2008. This was a postgraduate program out of the University of Toronto, uh, which you kept alive and running um, for longer than even Marshall McLuhan had run it since its humble origins in the, in the 60s. Is that, is, is that accurate? It is. Uh, Marshall was uh, given the center in 1964-3, and of course, couldn't survive it <laughs> past 1980, so that's 17 years or about. And uh, I was there from 1983 to 2008, so that makes 25 years. In that and time. I love <laughs> Please go ahead. No, no, I've just said it was a wonderful thing to do because it allowed me and many people we worked together with, starting with Eric. We, we, we actually began with Eric... McLuhan and uh, Robert Logan, Bob Logan, to put together, to continue the um, Monday night seminars that were so well known, run by McLuhan. And we did that for a couple of years before they finally made the decision to reopen it. So we did it from 80, 81, 82, or rather 81, 82, and, and a bit of 83. And in 83, after some requests from other, other members of the, of the university, mm -hmm. the center was reopened. And so I eventually became co-director with the first acting director, then co-director, and then director. And it was a, it was wonderful. We had a lot of a uh, lot of really exciting things going on, and uh, that was. It. And I think I'm very happy to report that a lot of exciting things are still going on right right now at the McLuhan program, or rather around the McLuhan program, to be precise. Wonderful. I, I hope it's uh, it's not bold of me to say that one of them is the New Explorations Journal, which at the aforementioned Professor Robert Logan is uh, is chief ed editor of, and of which uh, you've been published in, in its first edition with uh, your essay, Three Looming Figures of Digital Transformation. You've been working in uh, predicting and, tr well, not predicting, but recognizing in the present the effects of technology um for decades, and then now, especially in your books, uh, *The Skin of Culture* (1995), *Connected Intelligence* (1997). To me, these books are even more relevant today, perhaps, to the mass audiences that when they were um, when they were written in the '90s for for the sneak peeks of the future that uh, that um, explorers like you were um, trying to provide at the McLuhan Center. So, could you tell us a little bit? more about uh, your latest writings on the digital twin concept. <laughs> okay. Um, anybody hearing he hearing this or seeing this now may be uh, proud owners of Alexa. Are you, for example, Clinton? Alexa? Ah, ah no. The slave, the slave master of uh, Amazon and Jeff Bezos. <laughs> right, right. Oh, uh, I'm, or, I'm familiar. You... <laughs> those who don't have Alexa, they probably use Siri. Am I mm. wrong? 
<laughs> the anyway, personal assistance. What does that mean? That actually means that you already have the incipient figure of the digital twin. Alexa is not your twin for the moment. It's uh, more like uh, part of the family of Jeff Bezos. But it is something that begins to talk to you, record, register your preferences, know what you want, more or less, suggest you things to buy and to, to listen to. Alexa is a, is, is, is a artificial intelligence system that collects all your data, at least all the data it can, that I used to call the digital unconscious. Mm -hmm. The digital unconscious, everything that's known about you that you don't know or that you don't remember. And so the digital unconscious together needs to come, to come together in somehow and reverse in its opposite figure of the digital twin. The twin would be, imagine hijacking Alexa and saying, okay, Alexa, from now on, you're serving me. You're not serving Jeff Bezos. You're not serving Amazon. Mm -hmm. And not only that, I'll give you access to much more of my data as far as I can get them from the European GDPR, for example. I mean, as far as I can control them. And mm -hmm. I, see, I surely will want to do that. And the law will help me. So here I am with all this data. It's all in single character that knows me perfectly well because the digital twin knows everything I've done and remembers it. I don't. So the digital twin also, having collected all my data, has data analytics system that allow to actually literally mine that data to know much more than Alexa ever did. And that digital twin becomes a digital master in some fashion too, because it knows more. I mean, I can imagine a digital twin uh, telling you what kind of job you should choose when you're just getting out of university <laughs> and find you the place where you should go actually Ask for it. I can even go as far as saying it might tell you who to marry or not. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, I'm saying what is the, the, the whole the whole sort of trust, I guess even the message of the little twin is the externalized the completed externalization of whatever was inside us. Think about it. All of us have a point of decision. Whatever we do, whatever gesture, whatever thought, whatever whatever decision we make comes from somewhere in our body. You agree? Yes. It's somewhere. It could be in your head, it could be your heart, as some people romantically say, it could be your feet as well. I mean, <laughs> lots of people think with their feet. So um, the idea is that the externalization of a principle of decision from the human body is entirely new. In the old days, it was called community, where everybody decided for you what to do. And so that was sort of external to you as well, but it was very much shared between inside and outside. Today, you can, we're going towards, I mean, it's not that it's a digital twin hasn't already happened. It has because we are already letting a lot of suggesting system, recommendation system make their decision for us. So we're already outer determined. And we're more so now that we're also penetrated by tra tracing devices and collected precisely for our digital unconscious, not to our service, but government and business. Mm -hmm. So that's why I say the digital twin is a very important concept. And I would not even want to talk about it with that certitude if it was not already more than a concept. Samsung is promising, Samsung is now promising in the next six months to produce a, digital, a personal digital twin. 
Now, what you need to know is that the word digital twin was not always applied to you and me or to anything that would be associated with you and me. It was an invention in 2002 by a bunch of engineers of how to reproduce the mechanics and the functioning of big, very expensive and difficult machines in a digital form so that you could monitor it and you could actually not only have access to its functioning in real time, but at any moment of trouble, have access to the addresses of where you get the piece or where you get the technician or whatever to actually come and you know, repair the thing. So hugely interesting for, for certain engineering purposes. But then suddenly the uh, concept sort of escaped engineering and became a, a, a adapted to smart cities. The idea that you could constitute a parallel digital city to run your services better. So true that is that even in London, there is a very large project plan that is Digital London, and they are thinking of actually moving that to digital country. But then the digital, the digital twin idea also got into professional services, um, idea of a digital twin for, for, for managing, of course, businesses as well as just managing machines. And so it is, and, it, and it's also being considered, more than considered, it's, it's being discussed and beginning to be implemented in medical services because there's nothing better than to know a person's digital twin medically. But of course, that's the, that's the bridge between the machines and the person as far as the digital twins, you know, evolution comes. Mm -hmm. And so now... Uh, for for med medical, the medical uh, profession has been rather welcoming to the idea, considering that precisely what I was said before, if you know everything about the patient and uh, even things that the patient can't remember, for example, what did he eat three years ago that uh, you know and ended up in a very bad night? Well, these things are very valuable for medicine, but now imagine how valuable they are for people, just you and me. So it's coming. It's going to be a trillion dollar business. I'm sure about it. It'll be, it'll take other names. I'm, I'm not worried about, about how it's going to be, where it's going to actually be developed. That's not the problem. Mm. But in terms of how useful and how powerful an industry it could become, then we're on track. Mm -hmm. Then we're on track with knowing that it's on its way. And as McLuhan said, to be a good prophet, never predict anything that hasn't already happened. <laughs> Is there a continuity um, between, say, 1980s-style um, lifestyle marketing, uh, where, where, uh, where um, markets prescribe to people entire lifestyles? I'm a jogger. I'm active. I buy jog jogging pants and, I, and, I, and headphones. Um, the, the, yeah. the broad categorization of consumer groups and the prescription of them on the selling of them as forms of life, which was pioneered in, uh, in uh, America by, by advertising firms. Is, is that a sort of progenitor of, uh, of the sort of concept that we're discussing, just at a more uh, mass yes. scale? Yes, it was. It was, it was called, well, there were several various uh, businesses doing it, but the most well-known at the time was VALS, Values and Lifestyles. And they had eight, I remember, eight categories of people. So that's really very gross. It's a, it's a very rough cut, you, say, <laughs> you could say. Uh, eight categories of people. And I, I, I can't remember what they were. But I remember that they started then and they were very successful. But, of course, it's nothing compared to the possibilities today of not dealing with categories but with individuals. Mm -hmm. So that the, the mass individual, as uh, Manuel Cassell says, they're all mass individuals. 
And so uh, that's that's very much what's happened today. And it's, of course, done because of big data. Without big data, none of this could happen. Mm-hmm. You've got big data on one hand, you've got artificial intelligence on the other. So you have fa- fantastic analytics, and you can just literally target and zero in on every one of us individually. I and suppose- in fact, McLuhan predicted that too. He, he said, he, he made a comparison with uh, uh, Master... <laughs> Master Muffler, I think it was. Marshall was very funny with his comparison. He said, you know, uh, today you have to order a different muffler for every car, you, not every car, but every category of car or every model of car you are actually dealing with. But in the future, you'll have a computer that will simply just create, uh, know the name of the model and then send a message, and the message will create that particular muffler. I love the idea of it being a muffler. You could have gone <laughs> much further up than that. But that's what it is, that the, the idea that you can actually tailor down to the unit any kind of human transaction uh, and, 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 and record it and keep it for further reference and, and, and you know, collect that information on top. So, hmm. yes, I think, uh, I think that we are now, well, that's the, I, I can't say that's the good news on the good side of it, but it's actually the Western side of it, what we're talking about, right? Okay. Collecting data on everybody and using it for their own good, but really for the good of the business. That's the Western side. The Eastern, and particularly the Chinese side of it, is a little bit more threatening. It's called uh, social credits. Did you know about that? That's one, mm-hmm. another one of the great figures that I'm talking about in this, in this article. Mm-hmm. Why? Because social credits, not only are they sussing everything about you that they can, and in real time and continuously... But even as they do that, they also value, evaluate or in, evaluate you in real time and continuously, which means that very much like Lacey in the, the Black Mirror show, mm-hmm. you know, about the girl who constantly is looking at her, at her rating in her cell phone, Chinese people have already been refused entries to planes and trains mm. for not only held on, not only for what they might have done, but for the company they keep. Mm-hmm. Too many loose characters, dubious, you know, person, suddenly your train is not for you. The train mm-hmm. is not for you. You can't get on. So I'm telling you, this is this this unfortunately is also the future. Total surveillance. Uh, yeah, it is a, it's a future. And we will probably find ways to moderate it. But if there is anything that's going to defend you and me and everybody who's listening, their own kind of, the last bit of control they can have on their own reality, it will be the digital twin. We can actually tune the twin to really be the defender of our own personality, to be the representer, in fact, hmm. of who we are. Because what we, who we are today, remember that, is now being expelled from, the content, from inside to outside. Hmm. Our thinking, our remembering, our planning, all these things are done on some screen. And all our faculties are going there. So it's not as if we're going to be self-preserving and not and present some kind of autonomous resistance to this invasion and this evaluation. Hmm. So we, got a pro- we have a problem, and I think that problem should be attended, and I think that the digital twin could be one of the solutions. I'm not saying it's the, on- you know, it's the only one, hmm. but I'm saying it looks like it's possible because it would gather all the stuff we're putting out. Right. So it was, yeah. uh, absolutely. 
Absolutely. So what we're describing here in the paper, you go into the concept of there being three worlds, right? Yes. One's internal subjective space, the outer objective real world, and now the, the uh, emergence of this third digital realm. Yes, your, your screen, this screen. We're occupying this screen. We're occupying this space between ourselves. We're occupying this entirely different kind and, and coherent mm -hmm. by itself. You know, it's, it's very different what's happening in your head and what's happening on your screen, just as it's very different from what's happening on your screen and what the screen itself is made of. Mm -hmm. I, I find it very fascinating that in 1997, in, in Connected Intelligence, you, you describe the, the movement from VR, virtual reality, to AR, augmented reality, and that's the term that was in use in 1997, which now people recognize as Pokemon Go when they go around uh, overlaying the digital on, onto their real world. And then you say it ends up eventually in reality coming through to us directly through the medium. Um, so so we're, we're talking about this sort of artificial merger between the content of the digital space and our embodied perception of the real and so the more we move into the digital the more we ourselves are coming out into the real as something which has this under our skin so and publishing it and publishing it yes yeah as we, as we put ourselves out we're published it may not be very important <laughs> may not have very long shelf life but we are being published and so that publication as i said before helps a lot of other people than ourselves There's so this, yes, I, I i think that Externalizing ourselves to uh, screens and, and, and networks and, uh, and the internet in general uh, is one aspect of the question, but it doesn't mean we lose our privacy. That's gone. It was over since Mark Zuckerberg declared it, and so we all said, oh, yes, Mark, you're absolutely right. Privacy is gone. And we know that. And it's very clear. It really is gone. But then we have to remember before I go on that privacy came in, so it can also go out. When did it come in? It came in when we took control of language by learning to write and read, obviously. Then you internalize language. And when you silence it, you made entirely your own private universe with all its imagery and all the stuff that it, just read a novel and you suddenly live that novel from within, not from without. Okay, so that privacy came in. Now that's going. That's 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 all you. That doesn't mean, however, that although we lose the autonomy of our mental space, we really do. I mean, we've already lost it. The real autonomy of our mental space is being invaded, right? But we don't lose the autonomy of the... We do lose the, the autonomy of the body to the extent that we already have... We're already controlled spatially. Yes, we of course are. We're controlled spatially by habits, by government, by laws, by uh, housing... We are controlled spatially, but there is some kind of independence of movement that remains that is autonomous physically. So the physical space is the, one, the most gracious to us, I would say, the one that actually lets us be, whereas the mental space is given to invasion. And uh, of course, and the space that we are occupying now is not mine. Well, it is, <laughs> I occupy it, but it's not mine. You know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's very... It's very difficult to make it mine. So we've got a lot of different values attached to these different spaces, and uh, we have to get used to take the maximum control of that space as we are sharing now. So if, if, if I could just use a, a term which has a specific meaning in modern cognitive science, it's that of salience. Your consciousness is, is the tracing of what you find to be salient to you moment by moment by moment, whether it's yeah. interior or exterior. So suppose the mechanism you're describing here 
is the capturing of one's personal salience by this prescription of what's pertinent to you by your twin or by the state. Yeah, and uh, yes, that's very, and that's a very good observation. I thank you for it because we do have to here make some distinction about what consciousness does and what it means. But of course, because consciousness encompasses all three spaces, mm-hmm. right? They, mm-hmm. and, and, and and it's unified. It unifies them in some fashion. That's where it starts, right? Mm-hmm. So the occupation is more the word than the the recognition or the observation. Mm-hmm. It's occupying physical space and occupying mental space, which we do centrally. And it's occupying, with my cursor here, virtual space, which we do to a certain extent, but we certainly don't... Oh, well, then again, I should be careful about saying that. We do have some ownership of it, of course, we have some, but it's it's not private, <laughs> it's not personal. People, Other people own it, or... Take, take, take it. So mm-hmm. you see what I'm saying? There's a lot of ambiguity regarding our relationship to this third space. I'd like to use a metaphor to, to get at this concept of this third space of the digital. And that would be that of um, watch, watching a film. If you watch The Wizard of Oz or, or uh, you know, Aliens or the, or the Term- Terminator, you're being sucked into, you know, the dream world fantasy for an hour and a half of a fictional movie, right? But if when a film director, when, um, when if Stanley Kubrick were to sit down and watch one of these films, what he's doing is, in his perception, is reverse engineering the production of the film. He's recognizing the lighting and the soundtrack and the acting and the directing and the pacing. He's re- his concept of the film is not that of every other moviegoer in the audience. It's, in fact, he's following the labyrinth of the content of the media uh, and recapitulating through the stages of apprehension back to the real world where this is just all some film set somewhere in Hollywood of the sort that he himself has worked on in in enough times to reverse engineer. So for him, perhaps the fantasy space of the film is not a separate floating space in and of itself, but is in fact merely merely an illusion that's got every, every, everyone else r- rather ca- captivated. That's is there cool. an analogy there, you think, that, that could be useful? Very useful. Um, not only useful in general, but useful to me in particular because I taught cinema for a long time and I can't watch a movie without evaluating just what you talk about. <laughs> but I've never had to make a film, or I did, but they were small things. Uh, but uh, yes, I, that's absolutely true. And it's a very good way of distinguishing the way we are caught by a movie. But now compare that to the way we're caught by a dream. There again, there is a difference of intensity. In a dream, there is no doubt that, you are happen- that it's happening. Mm-hmm. In, a, in a, watching a movie, we, we are back of the mind, semi-conscious that it's a movie. Even though we're totally caught by the story and, and our consciousness is projected, as you just beautifully explained, uh, into the actual experience, there is still the, the suspension of disbelief. Mm-hmm. The suspension mm-hmm. of disbelief. Whereas in your inner dream, there is no such thing as suspension of disbelief. You just wake up from a dream, and mm-hmm. if it's been a little bit tough, you go, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you, you don't do that getting out of the cinema. You can say, well, that was a great movie. But you don't say, I escaped this one. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so... Uh, so that's 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 very good. It's a very good series of epistemological issues, mm. and God knows we need to think more and more about how we get to know things. Ha, have <laughs> Have you heard of the Mycroft project? 
the free software open source personal assistant. You, you, you could call it a competitor to Siri or to Alexa, but it runs entirely on your own locally owned computer. How wonderful! Send it to me right away. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. I, I I hope to have it running soon on my Pine Phone, which is my free Linux computer phone, which is entirely openly designed and has kill switches for the microphone and doesn't support any Android apps or any Apple apps. There's not part of any commercial ecosystem whatsoever. There's a huge safe harbor of a digital ecosystem of free software for 20, 30 years, which exists precisely in anticipation to become an anti-environment to these sorts of scenarios. And I think a, lo a lot of what we're looking at today is the reaction of the free and open internet rebelling against the sort of scenario which the digital twin is uh, sort of the harbinger of. Wonderful thing. Well, no, it's very good news. But I also have good news for you. I, I hereby declare you my technical advisor from now on because I, <laughs> it's, really, it's very good to have people who just keep their nose right on that, you know, track because it is so and it's growing so fast and it is so exciting as well so anyway so that was very useful to have uh, uh, a if, if, if you can send it to me or if mm -hmm. I can, how, how does it how do you write it mycroft like uh, sherlock oh, holmes's brother hmm? like the brother of sherlock holmes mycroft holmes. Ah, okay oh well cool oh, well of course it would <laughs> 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 Um, so here we got. So that's my that's the next uh, next uh, argument for uh, for the digital twin. Oh, wonderful, wonderful! I yes, I I'd love to dig in, into that deeper with you. But for now, I, I I'd like to move on to a to a related topic, and uh, that's the idea of um of the externalized digital self, which the digital twin is the latest incarnation of. But I I I'm thinking more of the self externalized sort of as the reflection of narcissists, which which we all have in the form of our internet avatars or our internet personas or alter egos. This was a very huge topic in the 90s and and yeah, and 2000s. I mean, that's when all the most salient books were being written, and and so I don't see the the digital twin as as being a, anything different or separate than that, but but rather a more con, um, a continuation which is sort of captured. Or uh, is now being come up with by by you know um, the boys in the back room at large corporations for the sake of their their various you know profit models what what have you. Um, what's interesting to me is all the talk about pro proprioception and the sense of feeling and embodiment or discarnate disembodiment that one has with electric media. Do you stand by the notion that that um, living discarnately through through an avatar on a screen directly affects one's sense of physical embodiment to the point where in this book you used the example of bungee jumping as an attempt to try and reinvoke a sense of sensation or a th or a kinesthetic you know thrill that, that that one feels is missing from one's day-to-day -day life i do I, and i'm very interested in the, in that question and thank you for asking it because uh, there's a book that collected essays that i put together called the point of being which is all about touch touch in our time and uh but in, in it, I use a lot of artists' work. You can get a lot from artists about touch, whether they are concerned directly with it or not. But I'll give you an example which, uh, which struck me enormously. It's by Paul Sermon, and it's called Telematic Dreaming. And it happens in two different galleries, which uh, show a bed, a large bed. And uh, above it, there is a video uh, a camera that picks your image and sends it to the other side, wherever it is, 
mm-hmm. could be the next door, but it could also be, you know, <laughs> the distance that separates us. And so the person on the next, on the other side will sit on the corresponding empty side of the bed, mm-hmm. and then they begin to, you know, mm. and there are lots of people around, so they behave, but <laughs> generally. <laughs> but, no, but the point is, is, the whole idea is to experience touch in a very different way. So here you have a real mix between the virtual and the real, or the biological touch. And it's a huge experience when you really take it in. And in fact, Susan Kozel has written beautiful stuff about Paul Sermon's work. It's, it's one of those manifestations of a, you could call it tertiary touch, you could call it, I don't know, it's, it's, it's definitely a new sensation. Hmm. I'll give you another one. Uh, another artist uh, from Studio Azzurro here in Italy created <clears throat> a piece that is a room that you walk right into, and on the floor are images, video images of people. I mean, li- not live video images, but uh, animated video images of people who are sleeping in various states of dress, nude, half-dressed, whatnot. And you hear them groan in their sleep. And so you walk into that room and you see all these bodies beneath your feet. And they're all, you know, sleeping and, and, and like if you were sleeping yourself, groaning. So you start walking. And the moment you walk on one, over one of the bodies, because the, you, there seems to be room between your feet and the body. But in fact, the moment you walk over the image of that body, it, it doesn't wake up. It just leaves and turns around and, you know, mm-hmm. uh, lets her yelp or whatever. Okay, now what, does, what does that do to the people who walk in that room? They are they are penetrating a simulated intimacy, right? Mm-hmm. But simulated or not, the emotion that they experience from penetrating it is one of violation and of, and of, and of discomfort. For me, it was. Mm. The idea of walking around, simply waking these people, if I was a kid, I'd do it. <laughs> of course, it'd be lots of fun. The kid doesn't feel the experience. Well, the kid can. I don't know. I shouldn't demean the kid. But me, as an adult, felt wrong about walking on bodies, mm-hmm. right? Even though I knew it was a simulation thing. And that's another problem with technology from the digital world, the digital transformation. Doesn't matter how simulated things are, they suddenly take on a reality that's very close to human. Mm-hmm. It's visceral. It's visceral. Yeah, it's, it's, visceral. it's pre-conscious, totally visceral. you know? Oh, and I think, I think visceral explains very well my experience, but, but if it's coming from a digital manipulation by artists to make me feel something entirely different than what I'm used to. That's what I'm saying about the new senses that artists are creating for us. Mm-hmm. We've been very limited in our the quantity of sensorial experience that we have. Mm-hmm. From media, right. Yeah. It's been screens and keyboards. So do you think do you think that that this uh the limiting of what we've had so far, this uh um this cyberspace experience as we have, could could this not in the way that mirrors in the bedroom contribute to say um anorexia could this not be a large indicator or 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 origin of the sort of body dysmorphic issues that one sees arising in uh in um, popular culture at large which debates are raging about today on social media i feel like this is a really underexplored contribution to several very important um discussions regarding the feeling of the relation of oneself to one body to well, one's you're right. 
I like the term dysmorphic. I mean, I didn't know that, and I, I get it right away because I did some Greek when I was a kid. <laughs> <laughs> but no, the point is, I, uh, I, I get it absolutely. And it's something that is indeed happening, but it's happened at every big, uh, you know, uh, technological change in the Renaissance. The Renaissance was entirely dysmorphic as well. Right. And uh, Freud, Freud has underlined our dysmorphia as we were moving into the electronic age. So, yeah. You have this is, term, the skin of culture. Uh, this 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 idea of aesthetic design as a sort of counterbalance or the sort of uh, handle by which we can acclimate our body or our sense of self to the changing technological environment. Yeah. It's like we have, so you, you can look at all of fashion as a as an attempt to reequilibrate to the, the changes of of what the you know industrialism or or the other forces which caused the dysmorphia to uh, to adapt. Is that seem like a good like? I'm probing. No, no, I got, <laughs> I, but no, you you are uh, gen genuinely doing so. It very much in the McLuhan sense. I mean, uh, Marshall always connected first of all electricity and touch, and 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 I would push it further. Electricity is the is the medium which allow our sensory life to express itself and to be known. Mm -hmm. It's it's electronic connection, synaptic connection are electronic in in nature, so. Electricity is naturally a sensory extension. Uh, my microphone makes noisy now. Come on. <laughs> um, so electricity is the extension of the senses in some fashion. So the skin of culture meant that, but it is also meant it at a very large scale of the global the global presence of satellites. Mm -hmm. Satellites are like a skin; they report information on the body mm -hmm. it, it's it, even though their their footprint may be limited to europe or north america or north pole for for that matter mm -hmm. uh it, they are reporting they are they, they are like sensory information system uh which have a, a a tactile role but not a tactile nature i mean except for the electricity so that i think yeah the skin of culture meant several levels of digitized sensorial life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You can, I, I, like, I'm, I, my first thought when reading it was, was this sort of marriage between um, the idea of using a computer and the cyberpunk aesthetic, which is now widely credited to okay. the books of, of um, William Gibson, for instance, Neuromancer and whatnot. This has sort of been the, the, the popular reception and understanding of digital culture and expression as an aesthetic sensibility to balance the sort of alienation that the computer user has in the 90s from from uh, from the rest of the world as an early cave explorer or spelunker or canary in the cold mine what have you into the digital yeah. world you know i have a problem with politicizing these issues hmm. it's like politicizing the issue of reading and writing in the time the time of plato and, and socrates mm -hmm. It's like, you know, how we, you're going to stop it? What the digital transformation is, is, it's nothing about that. Digital transformation is the transformation of us as people. Mm -hmm. So far, it's called, it's really dealing with management issues and business problems. And, you know, hey, that's not it. The digital transformation is like the alphabet. It's just as deep. It goes just as profoundly. The alphabet changed entirely the Greco, the Greek culture mm -hmm. from tribalism to individuality, individualism. The printing press did the same thing for a Europe 
European continent that had been really much more community oriented until then than individualized. And of course, Protestants versus Catholics was just that, the response to the individualization of faith, the, the grabbing of faith as a personal thing, as opposed to be something that was belonging to the Pope and the church and so on. So Protestants were actually, and they became extraordinarily uh, concerned about their, their destiny and their soul. And uh, they became Puritans because, you know, suddenly instead of being, being ob having obligations towards the other, which still was a Christian general idea, love thy neighbor as thyself, suddenly your destiny was in your own hands and you better be, be careful what you did with it as opposed to something that you shared with the other people. So it's, it's, we're talking about profound transformations that are occurring when the major communication device that deals with language, and soon we'll stop dealing with language, I'll get to that, deals with language uh, is actually uh, transforming the psychology, social and personal. So that's, that's what I'm trying to say. The digital transformation is way more than the political issues of artists who want to resist the government. <laughs> the government is just much, as much caught by it <laughs> than they are. Okay, I don't want to demean them either. I think it's wonderful that people pay attention to this, but I'm saying there are some much more urgent issues and some artists are addressing those, which is that, yes, we're being completely different people. We're becoming different people, which we did without knowing what was happening during the Renaissance. And we still don't know what's happening. Right. We need... Well, some of us are having doubts, like you and me. <laughs> <laughs> you must have been sitting in front of this webcam how many hours a week? Oh, uh, it's, been, it's been a bit quieter now because all the Italians are on the holiday, so they are less concerned with blah, blah, and more with <laughs> getting into the water. Uh, but, uh, but yes, I would say during the lockdown, uh, during the... Oh, the strongest part of long down for three months, I, I, it could have been two to three hours a day, not just a week. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Two to three hours a day and sometimes six hours a day, but that was not, not frequent. And the problem with that is that it's okay. You can uh, be on there. You can just talk, but I don't do that. I actually prepare. So it takes a while before the actual webinar has been called to make sure that, you know, I'm not going to uh, waste anybody's time. Mm -hmm. well, I, prep, prep, preparation is key. I, I relate to that as well. And I think this is well, gonna... you are very well prepared for this one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank, thank, thank you for saying so. And I think that's because we're approaching a topic which Marshall McLuhan used to say that the artist is the only one who has the bravery to look at the present. It's, it's yeah. a very scary thing. And I think that the topics that we're discussing are, are topics which are on the public mind, but, but in a sort of terrifying specter paranoid sort of way this is the undercurrents of you know the whisper networks in in the deep web the more conspiratorial sort of thinking the substance of it and i feel like the above ground academic level government conference level um, um sort of discourse which which has been going on you, you know, if, if, Anyone who wants to pick up a book can track this, the, the source and discussion in broad day, daylight of all the topics which, which you know, um, are spoken for in the public mind at a growing sense only by um, the more paranoid or sensationalist uh, sort of celebrities of the age. And so I feel like getting a sense of sanity in discussing such topics as being possessed by, by the demon inside of your computer that puppets you around in this book you call it like an electric Pinocchio. 
Um, <laughs> it's a it's a very heady, uh, interesting sort of topic that that needs to be spoken of honestly, with all the ramifications, the services and the disservices. But uh, but um, yeah, I I hope this podcast and uh, this entire series goes a small way toward towards um rebalancing and re-equilibrating a sense of poise about these discussions. And I thank you a lot for joining me here to uh, to kick it off. I'm very pleased to, to have been able to do that. And I uh, also uh, would be perfectly willing to come back to talk about other things if you want. And also would be interested in hearing, I don't know how many people are following this now, but it would be nice to have their questions if they had any. I think we can arrange that. Absolutely. Um, newexplorations.net is the website for the New Explorations web, web blog. That's where you can find this new journal coming out of the University of Toronto, continuing the adventurous spirit of Marshall McLuhan and Ted Carpenter, the anthropologist who in the 1950s pioneered the entire study of uh, media, media studies and communication, a, a torch which you picked up and carried for a quarter of a century. And uh, the conversation <laughs> will continue. Thank, thank, thank you again for joining me, Professor. Okay. Thank you, Clinton. Bye, everybody. Bye.